Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories from French history. One quick note about today's show. This particular episode is not family-friendly. One of my iTunes reviewers mentioned that he loves listening to this show with his kids, and I'm really flattered, and I want to save you from a couple of awkward conversations. There's no swearing, and I don't say anything that couldn't be printed in the New York Times, but this is some heavy subject matter, so save this episode for the treadmill. All right, let's get things started. The first thing to remember about the Belle Epoque is that it is, in fact, a memory. A term like La Belle Epoque, aka the Golden Age, is the kind of name that a time period receives way on down the line by an old man sitting in front of a fireplace, crying into his whiskey and dreaming of the good old days. In this case, it was an entire generation of men. And they forged this kind of nostalgia while they were huddled in trenches, shielding themselves from mustard gas and trying their best to live through the wretchedness of World War I. After the world had spent four years going through that nightmare, the previous 40 years were looking like beautiful, shimmering dreams. The Paris of the Belle Epoque is one of the most famous dreams of the Western imagination. Consider last week's episode for a moment. When dreaming of Paris, we continue to think of those tall, white, uniform apartment buildings which line those big, wide streets. Yet we now know that those buildings and streets came at a terrible cost, isolating the poor and leading to the horrible uprising of 1871. As with so many aspects of the Belle Epoque, these downsides fade away from memory and only the dazzling parts are left. So with this in mind, I want to spend this week talking about some of the greatest victims of this historical revisionism, the women of Golden Age Paris. When the soldiers of World War I closed their eyes and remembered the women of the Belle Epoque, they thought of the types of women who had been featured in the art and literature of the age. The soldiers were thinking of young ballerinas twirling around on the stage, but not of the wealthy old men behind stage waiting for the curtain to drop so they could buy a ballerina for themselves. The men were thinking about beautiful barmaids winking at them across the counter, not about the sad streetwalkers lurking outside the bar on the sidewalk. The men were dreaming of the can-can dancers of the Moulin Rouge flashing their heels and petticoats on stage, but never of those same can-can dancers offstage, struggling to afford food and raise their children. All of these women, the barmaids and the dancers, all the way from the streetwalkers to the most elegant courtesans, they were all part of what's called the demi-mondaine, the half-world of those who lived outside the boundaries of respectability. These women were the mascots of the Belle Epoque. Think of Manet's Olympia, or his barmaid at the Folies Bergère, or Degas' bathing women, or Renoir's garden party girls. These women were literally the faces of the age, but their stories are all too often forgotten, which is a shame because their stories are also fascinating. In the shadow world of the demi-mondaine, anything went. There was tragedy, yes, 
But sometimes, if you were very lucky and very savvy, there was opportunity. This week, let's take a look at the bells of the Belle Epoque. By the 1880s, the glory days of ballet had passed. Ballet was a sideshow, an intermission act to keep the attention of bored opera goers waiting for the next show to begin. The young dancers were admired by the audience, but only for their legs, not for their art. The greatest admirers were the old men waiting backstage, rich men in fur coats and beautiful suits, buying subscriptions to the ballet in exchange for the right to visit the girl of their choice backstage. As one director of the Paris Opera put it, attending the opera was fashionable, keeping a ballet girl even more so. The old men knew the ballerinas were poor, desperate girls looking for any way to escape life in the gutter. Their dancing wages certainly wouldn't do it. Without a generous male patron, the girls would have starved. If a girl was truly lucky, a patron would pay for apartments, jewels, and carriages, as long as she held up her end of the unspoken arrangement. So when a half-blind, bearded man with a terrible temper began visiting the Paris Opera backstage in the 1870s, the dancers assumed he was there for the same reasons as everybody else, until he began bringing a sketch pad with him. One ballerina remembered, he used to stand at the top or bottom of the many staircases, just drawing the ballerinas as they rushed up and down. Edgar Degas was not at the opera to keep a ballet girl. He was here to sculpt one. Edgar Degas' first masterpieces from the ballet were sketches and drawings. He called his models, the ballerinas, his petite rats, which was better than their usual nickname, the sauteuses, meaning those who leap, as well as those who, let's just say, leap into bed. Over the course of the rest of his life, Degas had so many little ballerinas traipsing in and out of his studio that even the authorities were alarmed. Yet amongst all these girls, one dancer was singled out for a special project. Now that his eyesight was failing and sketching was becoming difficult, Degas wanted to capture the movement of the ballet in a sculpture. So in 1881, Degas completed what would eventually become his most famous sculpture, Little Dancer, aged 14, a young girl standing with her shoulders low, her head high, her foot turned out. The sculpture was a masterpiece. But our story today is not about Degas. It is about the Little Dancer, and her name was Marie. In 1865, a baby girl was born in the 9th arrondissement of Paris. Her parents were Belgian, a father and a laundry woman. The girl was named Marie, after an older sister who had died after 18 days. Shortly after she was born, Marie, her parents, and her older sister Antoinette settled into a new apartment on the Rue Notre-Dame-de-Lorette in the Breda district. While the nearby church of Notre-Dame-de-Lorette had stood nearby since 1823, when the locals referred to a Lorette, they were really talking about the neighborhood's most famous attraction. No, not the church, 
the prostitutes. Prostitutes were everywhere in this squalid part of town, and even laundry women like Marie's mother were assumed to rake in a side income the old-fashioned way. For a lot of women, the oldest profession was more of a part-time job, used to make ends meet during hard times. Shortly after Marie's younger sister, Louise, was born, Marie's father died. Suddenly forced to raise all three girls on her own, Marie's mother relocated everyone to Montmartre, and it's safe to assume that once she did so, Marie's mother started spending more and more nights working on her side gig. In the meantime, Marie and her sisters kept busy with dance lessons. And this is where Marie met the grumpy old man who would make her famous. When Little Dancer, aged 14, debuted in 1881, the crowd assumed Marie was a conquest, with critics saying her face was imprinted with the detestable promise of every vice. But during the time Degas was sculpting her, Marie was working hard to pass her dance examinations. By the time her likeness went on display, Marie had gained entrance to the corps de ballet at age 15 and she was making her stage debut. And within two years, Marie became a prostitute. Prostitution in Belle Epoque Paris took many forms, from the lowest gutter snipe walking the sidewalks and hollering at men passing by, to the elegant courtesans busily bankrupting the richest men of the nation inside luxurious maison clothes, so named because the blinds were always drawn to curious passers-by. Paris alone boasted 224 brothels those days, with an additional 30,000 women who were more like independent contractors, women like Marie's mother. Cheap brothels charged a single franc, about $7.50 in today's money, and men would simply take a ticket and join the line. More run-of-the-mill workers would belong to a maison, where they would be inspected by physicians every other week to make sure they weren't leaving their customers with any unexpected parting gifts. Anyone unfortunate enough to display symptoms of something unpleasant were immediately sent to the hospital, left completely alone in an isolated ward, and were probably doomed. Some young girls worked at the 19th century equivalent of Hooters, offering themselves up alongside the beer and sausages. The women of the Maison Clos were much fancier, and their nicknames would reflect their elegance. They might have gone by Calliope or Olympia, while women on the sidewalks went by things like the beef. But the greatest prostitutes of the age, the cocottes, or my personal favorite, the grand horizontals, held court over a vast realm of admirers. As one writer summarized, the courtesans were beautiful women of enormous social influence, customarily kept by a kind of cartel, three millionaires or two dukes or perhaps one royalty. But the most interesting courtesan of all, if you ask me, the Valtesse de la Beigne. At first, Louise de la Beigne's life sounds a lot like that of Marie. Louise was the illegitimate daughter of a laundry woman with a side gig, and her stepfather was a drunk who kicked her around. Like Marie, Louise started earning money very young, working at a candy shop until the day she was attacked by an old man at the age of 13. Her honor ruined, Louise was forced to enter the oldest profession full-time, 
on the most disgusting street in Paris. For years, Louise dreamed of a better life, and when she fell in love with a soldier, she thought perhaps happiness was hers. But after he broke her heart, Louise decided to break with the past. She cast off her former identity and forged a new name for herself, Valtesse, which is essentially a contracted form of Your Highness. I love it. Going forward, Valtesse de la Beignet spent years transforming herself into an elegant, educated, cultured courtesan. By day, she read books on art and history and philosophy. By night, she seduced the famous composer Jacques Offenbach. Leaning on Offenbach's arm, Valtesse met the most famous writers and artists of the day, who painted her portraits and used her in their novels. Up and up she climbed, seducing man after man, perhaps even Napoleon III himself, because why else would he bother to make her a countess in the middle of the Franco-Prussian War? After she grew bored of Offenbach, Valtesse moved on to a Polish prince who set up an apartment, which she trashed on her way to her next wealthy lover. And that next wealthy lover financed an enormous, beautiful house for Valtes on the most beautiful street in Paris and bankrupted himself in the process. In fact, just about the only lovers Valtes exempted from such spending were the artists she admired and often posed for, including Manet, Gervais, Courbet, and many more. One of her many nicknames was the Painter's Union. She discussed literature with Mirbeau and Goncourt. She discussed geopolitics with Gambetta. She kept in touch with useful ex-lovers, like the ambassador who would send her news and gossip and the occasional giant pagoda. Valtez acquired a breathtaking art collection, but perhaps no piece in her collection was more famous than her extraordinary bed. Immortalized by Emile Zola in his novel Nana, it was a bed such as had never existed before, a throne, an altar, to which Paris would come in order to worship her sovereign nudity. When Alexandre Dumas Jr. asked to view the bed, Valtes politely shook her head and reminded him, you can't afford it. By the time she was an old woman, Valtes had built a breathtaking villa where she trained protégés in the art of the courtesan and drove a luxury automobile. She died a wealthy woman, and she was buried, mysteriously and fabulously, between two men no one had ever heard of. Crawling from the gutter, the prostitute had died a countess, and her bed now resides in France's National Museum of Decorative Arts. The story of Valtez de la Beignet has the happy ending. Unfortunately, it is not the usual ending. For Marie, the sculpture by Degas was not a breakthrough. It was a high watermark. The ballet did not bring her fame or fortune. And within a year of her acceptance into the Cour de Ballet, Marie and her older sister were hanging out in local taverns, nasty places with names like the Dead Rat. A local gossip column alluded as to why. Her mother... But no, I don't want to say anymore. I'd say things that would make one blush or make one cry. Possibly desperate to make ends meet, Marie's mother put out her own daughters. 
Soon, Marie was fired for missing too many ballet practices, thanks to her long, sleepless nights. In the end, Marie's younger sister, Charlotte, spent the rest of her life successfully dancing with the Paris Ballet. Marie's older sister, Antoinette, went to jail after stealing a wallet from a John. But Marie... Marie disappears from the record. After her brief brush with fame and her initial steps towards professional success, Marie's story trails off in a filthy corner of the dirtiest neighborhood in Paris. Last year, while I was in Paris, the Musée d'Orsay ran an exhibit that I could kick myself for missing. Splendor and Misery was an exhibit about prostitution in the visual arts of the late 19th century. And for the first time, curators spent time thinking about not only the artists creating these works, but the women they're depicting. As one curator of the exhibit asked, why was prostitution such a big theme for artists? As he put it, the city was slippery. Everything was speeding up, becoming more commercial, more ambiguous, more of a spectacle. How can we be sure this person filled a certain role and not another? Who was who? Was she or wasn't she? These questions disturbed and fascinated artists. Valtès de la Beignet was an elegant, fashionable woman who enjoyed social success while doing essentially, one way or another, the same work as poor Marie. Like Valtès, other lucky courtesans used their social standing to rebel against the conventions of the age. Nicknamed the insoumises, or insubordinates, these glamorous and wealthy women did what they wanted without apology, like Louise Bossy, famous for blackmail, or Alice Le Provençal, equally comfortable with women or men, and even Leonide Leblanc, an early drag artist. Prostitution could be a pathway to despair or the only means of survival. For the lucky, savvy few, prostitution could be the ladder to success. For many women, it could be both. Even those who had achieved fame and status could find themselves cast back into obscurity in an instant after an illness or an accident or just plain aging. It could be a side job or a career trajectory. The Belle Epoque was an age of uncertainty for women, and there was no more uncertain or unpredictable life than that of prostitution. But the oldest profession was no longer the only profession available to women. Other women were taking advantage of that uncertainty of the hour to push for new opportunities and new careers, ones which had been traditionally off-limits to their entire gender, like Sarah Bernhardt, the daughter of a courtesan, who instead became the most famous actress in the world. When the soldiers of World War I looked back on the Belle Epoque, the women they remembered were the muses and models of art and literature, not the artists themselves. Yet the time was approaching when women could begin moving back and forth beyond the canvas. While Degas was sitting backstage at the ballet with his sketchbook, and Manet was painting his masterpiece, Olympia, depicting a prostitute reclining on a bed looking unapologetic, there was another artist, friends with both men, developing an entirely different body of work. Bert Morisot was a muse and a model to the Impressionists, but she was no demi-mondaine. She was something else entirely, a peer, a lady artist. 
So next week, we'll explore what happens when women get the chance to sit on the other side of the canvas. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. This week was crazy. We made it to the front page of the iTunes store, and there are about 20 times more listeners this week than there were last week. I'm really honored that you all are willing to set aside your time to listen to me, so I won't ramble on and take up any more of your time, but I wanted to express my thanks and appreciation to each and every one of you. My name's Diana Stegall, and this is a one-woman show. I write, research, and produce every episode. If you've never checked out the website at www.thelandofdesire.com, you might not know that I post lots of extra content there. This week, I've added portraits of Valtes de Lebignier. Don't worry, they're safe for work. Along with a bunch of links to other stories and further reading about the brothels of the Golden Age. Those links might not be safe for work. Join me again in two weeks for a new episode. And in the meantime, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Google Play Store. That's all for the next two weeks. So until then, au revoir.